0: Question, what does Adoptionism, Docetism, Apollinarianism, Arianism, Nestorianism, Monophysitism, what do all these things have in common? They're hard to say? <laughs> yes, they are hard to say, well... What they have in common is that they're all early church heresies. They're all early church false beliefs. They're wrong teachings about the person and work of Jesus Christ. One of these false, early false beliefs was, as I said, docetism. That's D-O-C-E-S-T-I-S-M. The word docetism comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means to appear, to appear, Thus, doceticism is the view that Jesus only appeared in the flesh. Maybe you've heard about this view, this early church heresy. He only appeared in the flesh, and therefore, if he only appeared in the flesh, well, then he's, he's not truly human. So, this, this false view holds up the deity of Christ, but it diminishes or it, it, it downplays, you might say, the humanity of Christ. It leans in one direction and leaves out another truth about Jesus, namely that he was a man. In some ways, Plato, believe it or not, is to blame for this early church heresy, although Plato lived some three 400 years before Jesus did. Plato taught that the physical parts of this world, the physical parts of this world, well, they amount to nothing. They're insignificant. They don't matter. Therefore, nothing of value, of true value, could be found in material things, or result from a material thing. Whereas the Apostle Paul taught, your body is a temple, you remember that. Plato taught, your body is a tomb. Having been influenced, the early church, having been influenced by these teachings of Plato, we can imagine why they struggled to accept the God-man. They struggled to accept Jesus Christ, that he was a man, and the Bible does, of course, teach that Jesus was a man. First Timothy 2, 5 says, For there's one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That's just one verse. Of course, <clears throat> excuse me, one profound implication or one profound result of this truth, that Jesus was a man, is that the death that, Je- that Jesus faced. Well, that was a real death. It was a real death. Not only that, but the emotions that Jesus expressed about his death, well, those were real. They were actual feelings of a real man. He wasn't acting. It didn't merely appear as if he was a real man, but he actually was, physical, we discovered last week from John chapter 12, verse 27, you remember Jesus said in, that, in our study last week, now is my soul troubled. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? Kind of a rhetorical prayer. Jesus didn't face death with some platonic idea that he only appeared to be a material being. He faced death as a man faces death, and he cried out, My soul is troubled. The hour has come. Jesus' words are as real as those prayed by King David in Psalm 55. Psalm David, or King David, says, My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me, fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. Is that real to Jesus? Hebrews 5, 7 says, in the days of his flesh, that is Jesus, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Yet while Jesus may have asked to be snatched away from this terrible death. It was precisely for this reason that Jesus came to this earth. This was his purpose. This is why he came to that fateful hour. We discovered last week, the cross fulfills Jesus' purpose. We also discovered that the cross glorifies God's name. It glorifies God's name. As it turns out, as we said, Jesus kind of thwarted his own prayer. You remember this. As soon as he offered up that prayer, he he pulled it back, and he changed it. It was just a rhetorical prayer. His real prayer was this, John 12, 28. Father, glorify your name. So instead uh, instead of praying, Father, save me from this hour. No, no, no. But actually, my hour has come, and so glorify your name. Do the work that you called me to. Fulfill your will. And so this perfect prayer, Father, glorify your name, really kind of embodies the purpose of his life. That's why he came, to bring honor and glory to the name of God, to the Father. This is why he came. The cross fulfills Jesus' purpose. It glorifies God's name. And there's one other thing you remember. The cross judges the world. It judges the world. Jesus said in verse 31, now, he says, is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, be driven out. Therefore, No, not yet. Now the judgment. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Although this world, we should say, was gathered, they gathered together to make a declaration about Jesus by putting him on the cross, the cross was a declaration against the world. By putting Jesus on the cross, they wrote their own doom. And there's a sense of kind of corporate solidarity here. Uh, the, the entire world is judged by these mere acts of the people that existed in Jesus' day. Because men, of course, love the darkness and not the light. And so they put him on the cross. If we were there, we would have done the same. That's why Jesus says, people loved the darkness. In another passage... They were blinded by their own sin. They failed to recognize Jesus as the true light, which gives light to everyone. Paul adds, 1 Corinthians 2, 8, none of the rulers of this age understood this. They couldn't see what they were doing. They didn't understand what was happening at the cross. For, he adds, Paul, for if they had, if they, if they truly knew, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They were blinded by their own sin. So they put Jesus on the cross, and in doing so, the world was judged because of that action. They didn't realize what they were doing in lifting Jesus up and making a public exhibition of him. They forfeited all of their authority. The world lost the right to exist by that action. I mean, think about it they killed God, their creator the one who spoke them into existence, they put him on the cross. And so, in doing so, they lost their right to exist again. While these evil men nailed Jesus to the cross and they cried out victory, in that very same moment, Jesus, it says in Colossians 2, verses 14 and 15, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. They looked up and they thought they had created a victory, that they won, the, and it looked like the devil had won. But in fact, in that death, Jesus was defeating them. He was actually disarming the rulers of this world. He was triumphing over them in him. Again, Colossians 2:14 and 15. And he even triumphed over the ruler of this world. And the ru- ruler of this world, or the God of this world, as it says in another place, is Satan. We spoke about that last week. Satan himself was defeated. Again, Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Therefore, the cross, as we saw last week, fulfills Jesus' purpose. It glorifies God's name. And the cross judges the world. These are three accomplishments of the cross, there are actually three of five that we'll discover in John twelve twenty seven through 36. This morning, I'd like to continue our study in these verses and pull out the last two. And so, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word, and we'll read this entire section again, John chapter 12, verses 27 through 36. But again, we'll be looking specifically at verses 32 through 36. Verse 27, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd, so the crowd answered him, You may be seated. We've already discovered that while the world sentenced Jesus to death, Jesus sentenced the world to death. And yet while the cross judges the world, it does something else. The cross draws all people. This is the fourth accomplishment of the cross. The cross draws people all people. Look at verse 32 again. And I, Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. There's a number of things to unpack in this verse. We'll start by stating the obvious. Jesus says that he will draw all people when something happens, when I am lifted up from the earth. Therefore, the drawing of all people happens when he is lifted up, It's at that time in being lifted up, that is, the time of being lifted up on the cross, in which Jesus will draw all people to himself. Now, this phrase, lifted up, if you're you're studying the Gospel of John and you're paying attention, you know that Jesus has used this phrase before in a very significant passage of Scripture, in fact. You're probably very familiar with John 3.16. probably have that verse memorized. For God so loved the world... He gave his only son, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But can you quote John 14 and 15, the verses just before that verse? Maybe not as significant. But in that verse, Jesus uses this phrase, lifted up. John 3, verses 14 and 15, And Moses, Jesus says, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Just as the Israelites looked up at the brass serpent in the wilderness, so whoever, which seems to be the, the major point of this here, whoever looks up at the brass serpent, at Jesus on the cross will have eternal life. Remember, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and what Jesus is doing there is he's, he's giving him an entirely new paradigm of thinking. Jesus is, Nicodemus is a teacher of the law, a Jewish man. And Jesus is coming to him saying, it's not about Jew or Gentile anymore. It's about being born again. That's what it's about. Not about following the law. It's something inside, it's internal. And so whoever looked up at that brass serpent, those snakes stopped biting them, and whoever looks up at Jesus will be saved will have eternal life in John 3 the cross is viewed from the outside it's an outside picture of it we we see it we can visualize it in our minds it's viewed from the outside we're we're looking out at the cross looking up at it whoever believes on it looks on it will be saved We're given an external picture of the cross and its effect. We see the Son of Man lifted up as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. And we're told that whoever believes in him, whoever looks up, will be saved. Well, in John 12 here, the cross is pictured from a different perspective. You might say it's pictured or viewed from the inside. That is, we're given an internal picture of the cross from Christ's perspective, from Jesus's perspective, Jesus is very emphatic, emphatic. He says, and I, which, is, which means he's the only one that can do this work. He's the only one that can accomplish this. No, uh, no one else can do this. And I, when I am lifted up the, from the earth, will draw all people to myself. You see, from our perspective, from the outside, we look up at the lifted Savior we believe. Yet, from Christ's perspective, Christ is looking down, you might say, drawing people to himself. That's that internal perspective. He looks down and he draws all people like a magnet to himself. Now, what does it mean when he says that he will draw all people to himself? How are we to understand this? Well, you might recall that Jesus used this word draw before, just like this idea of being lifted up is a part of John's gospel. Well, the word draw is found in John's gospel as well. And this word in John's gospel is used to draw out that truth that people don't naturally come to Christ. In fact, there's nothing natural at all about coming to Christ. Romans 3.11 says, no one seeks after God. No one seeks after God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the natural person does not accept the things of God, the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He does not understand that. He's not able to because they are spiritually discerned, spiritually appraised. Jesus made a point in John 6, No one can come to me, you remember this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The same word. It's only by a work of God in the soul that men are drawn to Christ. Jesus is using that same idea here. When he is lifting up, lifted up on the cross, he draws all people to himself. make the point even stronger, the word draw in the Greek has the idea of to compel, to compel someone. Listen to some of these verses where the same word is used, Acts 16, 19, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, this is that, you remember that time that there was some some men who had a slave girl and she would fortune tell, and she kept crying out to the apostles, and it says there, interestingly, that Paul kind of got sick of her crying out, and he healed her. And they were upset because they had made money off of her. And so it says in Acts 16, 19, when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, that he had healed the woman, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the ruler, rulers. Well, guess which word is to draw? They dragged them. Acts twenty one thirty. Then all the city was stirred up, this is Jerusalem, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. The mob dragged him out. Speaking about the sin of partiality in James 2, verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Same word. So the word to draw carries this idea of being dragged in these examples. In the sense, it is the sense in these verses that people were drawn in these examples with consent. Did they come willingly? Is there any sense that they were obliged to come, that Paul and Silas were obliged to come? I don't think so. People don't give consent to being dragged out and beaten by a mob. They don't give consent to that. Nor are they obliged to be falsely accused of in court, accused of anything in court. We don't want to go to court. That's why he uses the word. And the word picture behind this word, draw, or to compel, as I've said, is that of a magnet. You try and convince a magnet to set aside its magnetic field. Can you do that? Here then is what Jesus means to say, when I I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw, I will compel men by force. I will draw them by force. I will draw all people to myself. But this, of course, leads to a bigger problem maybe. If Jesus draws all people to himself, well, then all people must be saved seems that way at face value. But didn't Jesus say that we have to believe in order to be saved? So how do we make sense of that? Jesus even says that the wrath of God remains or abides on those who don't believe, John 3, 36. How how then can Jesus speak about compelling all people to come to him and yet also speak about a coming judgment against those who don't come to him? Which is it? Well, here's the solution that I'd like to propose. I don't believe that Jesus is saying, I will draw all people without exc- exclusion to myself. He's not saying I will draw all people without exclusion. What he's saying is that I will draw all people without distinction to myself. I think that's the way that we should understand this verse. Not all people without exclusion, but all people without distinction. And the context of this verse strongly supports this interpretation. When we read the words, all people, from Jesus, our minds should immediately go back to what triggered all of these words from Jesus. What is the context? What's happening here? Why is Jesus even saying this? Why did he begin to say, the hour has come? Well, you remember it was the arrival of those Greeks. Back up in verse 20. We were, here we are at this Jewish, Jewish feast, and the Greeks come, and they want to interview Jesus. They want to find out what's going on. And it's at that moment that Jesus says the hour has come. Here it is. Now is the judgment. Of course, and then we talked about last week, God speaks from the heavens, and nobody can understand it. They don't know what, what it is. It was thunder. Maybe an angel talked to him. And Jesus said, this voice didn't come for my sake. This voice came for your sake. That's the judgment. It was the visit of the Greeks then that triggered all of this. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now is the judgment of this world. So Jesus answers to the Greeks, the hour of his death has come. And in the wake of his death, He is going to be lifted up, and all people without distinction, whether Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, slave, or free, rich, or poor, black, or white, it doesn't matter, all people without distinction will be drawn to him. Therefore, Jesus isn't saying that the whole world will be saved. He's saying that all who are saved, whether Jew or Greek, will be saved in this way. This is how they'll be saved. That on the cross, he'll draw all people to himself. No matter who you are. Jesus isn't speaking of some nationalistic religion. He's speaking of a religion that is universal. In the sense that it welcomes any and all who will do this simple thing. Look up to the Savior. Look up at Jesus and believe no matter who you are, it's by virtue of Christ's death that all people, not you alone, will be drawn. And all will be drawn only by virtue of Jesus's death on the cross. And so he says, and I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. The fact that Jesus is speaking about the cross is clarified by John in the next verse, kind of in a parenthetical statement. He says in verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus makes it very clear. John makes it very clear to us. He's talking about his death. Might he be talking about his glorification? Maybe in some sense. But the first instance, he's talking about being lifted up on the cross. Jesus is speaking about the kind of death, death on the cross, I hope you can see it's not simply that Christ is the magnet. He is the magnet. But it's the crucified Christ that is the magnet. It's a crucified Savior. It's the cross that draws us to Christ. It's the reason why we sing these songs. It's the reason why the choir is singing this. Only because of the cross is this possible. The cross is what makes him attractive. It's why we sing. People on the outside, they look in and they they don't get it. They can't get it. It doesn't make sense to them. It only makes sense when you look up at the cross and you see what he's done for you. And and that's, that's a supernatural work, as we've already said. God reveals that to us. And now our response, our inward response, the Spirit's work in our life, is to praise Him. It's to acknowledge that. It's to tell our friends about it. To look up at the cross. It's not Christ without the cross, nor the cross without Christ. It's both together. Our Messiah, the Christian Messiah, not just a king on a donkey riding in, but a king on a cross. That's who we worship. That's what affects us. That's what's attractive to us. And what is it that draws us to the cross? What attracts us to the cross? Is it not his love? The love of that, that it embodies? And he would die for people like us? He would die for the people that don't seek him. No one seeks after God. No one does good. Yet he died for those. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I read that verse from Paul. If men knew what they were doing, they wouldn't have done it. They had no idea. They couldn't see it. And Jesus died for those people, for us. Greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus said that. And what's so magnetic about his love? Well, his love is a righteous love. It's not just any love. It's not like our love. Praise God it's not like our love. Because my love is so selfish. Even when it tries to be pure, it just evades me. And it's not. But his love is perfectly righteous. It's perfect love. Jesus takes that perfect love to the cross. And he comes to our aid against God's holy justice. That's the gospel, right? Isn't that what it's all about? God's perfect character. Not coming to, I don't know, what do worldly kings do? Whatever. He comes to die. He's a suffering servant. And so that perfect love is put on the cross. And it meets God's holy justice. And so God is perfectly just. Just. He doesn't ever have to skirt his justice. He can pour out his perfect righteous judge justice on that person who has a perfect righteous love. And in doing, Jesus can take on the sins of the world. And that's why at the cross, we have reconciliation. All those to look, who look upon him, who look up at the cross can receive the offer of forgiveness. He becomes our scapegoat. The Lamb of God, crucified, killed in our place so that we will stand before him one day and say, I know in him I, I have believed. We'll point to him in heaven, not me, him. Him. we have reconciliation. And through reconciliation, we have peace. And not some worldly, horizontal peace, but vertical peace. Peace with God, with our creator. For he himself is our peace, Paul said, Ephesians 2.14. The Bible, of course, does not promise us that if we come to Jesus, all the problems of this world will fade away. What the Bible and the cross of Christ promise us is this. If we look up at the cross, if we look upon Jesus, if we look full into his wonderful face, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen? Therefore, we plead, we pray, and we proclaim, come Christians, follow where our Savior trod. Our King victorious Christ, the Son of God, O Lord, once lifted on this glorious tree, as Thou hast promised, draw men unto Thee. For Thy blessed cross, which doth for all atone, creation's praises rise before Thy throne. So shall our song of triumph ever be, praise to the crucified for victory. This is our song. This is what we sing. There's more here in the text. Look at verses 34 and 36, 34 through 36. So the crowd answered him. They have questions. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Here's the questions. So Jesus said to them, in an answer that only Jesus can give, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe, there's that word again, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Here we find a fifth accomplishment of the cross. I promised you five. We discovered last week that the cross fulfills Jesus' purpose. The cross glorifies God's name. The cross judges the world. And this morning, we've discovered that the cross draws all people. And finally, we discover the cross reveals an urgent situation. The cross reveals an urgent situation. Is that up there? Okay, good. I didn't know if I got that right. Here we see the crowd struggling to make sense of Jesus' words. They understood that the cross, that is, the the Christ, that is, the Messiah, was supposed to remain forever. That's what they thought. Isaiah 9-7 says the Messiah will, quote, sit on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. One of the reasons why, you know, they thought Solomon might be that king. Well, Solomon came and and went. It wasn't Solomon. They thought maybe it was Josiah or some other king. Well, those kings came and went. They couldn't have been this Messiah because Isaiah says this king will last forever. We know that's true, Jesus. So what is all this business that you talk about, about being lifted up? What's going on? Furthermore, they hailed Jesus as Messiah. They they believed he was the king. But who is this Son of Man? We're confused by this. Help us understand, Jesus. What does all this mean? Well, you know, Jesus, if you're familiar with him, he doesn't quite answer the way that maybe his, the people who ask the questions want him to answer. And so he, he offers a, a different answer. What he does is he, instead of answering their questions directly, he stresses an urgent situation. The urgent situation that they're in. In the moment, of course. In so doing, he declares himself to be the true Messiah. Last Sunday, you might recall, we turned our clocks back an hour. I'm sure you love that. You love doing that. There's joy in your heart over that. The days are getting shorter. Shorter. The mornings are getting colder. We can see the season is changing. We see that out there. Nature is cyclical. That's how nature is. It's in a cycle. Although winter is coming, we know that another spring is on the horizon. That's the hope that we have. Spring will come. There's another dawn. There's another chance. That's how kind of the world is built, seasonal. But, friends, you see, God's dealings are not that way. The time to make a decision is terminal. There's an expiration date on the time. To hear the word of the Lord and to come and accept it, to believe in it. God's revelation is not like some looming planet that neither rises nor falls and is always available for study. Every morning you get up and there it is God's truth. It's not that way. The gospel is something that rises, shines only for a time, and then will be carried away at dawn. Therefore, the command is given, walk while you have the light. Don't dilly-dally. For if you do, Jesus says, darkness will overcome you. It will seize you like a monster, is what he's saying. And what does it mean to walk? Well, look at verse 36. Walk while you have the light. Excuse me. While you have the light, believe in the light. The words of Jesus are so perfectly crafted if you're into this kind of thing. It's a chiasm is what's happening there, what Jesus is doing. You take away verse 35. Walk, he says, while you have the light. And then he says, while you have the light, believe in the light. And so the one reveals the meaning of the other. To walk in the light is to believe. He's is using a kind of a figure of speech to illustrate the truth of walking is believing. They're the same thing. And so, here is the final response from Jesus to the crowds. Remember, we have more to, to work through in chapter 12, but once we're done with 12, things drastically change in the Gospel of John. The door is shut. Now we're in the upper room, and Jesus is only with his disciples. That's it. Except for a little brief instance where Judas is there, and then he's gone. Once Judas is out of the room now, the door is shut and it's just the twelve. Jesus is specifically speaking to them and we're then in the trial and the cross. So the ministry of Jesus is over. It's coming to an end in this moment. These are the last words that Jesus is offering to people. Walk while you have the light. The time is expiring. It's terminal. You won't have much longer. Believe in me now, accept who I am now. And this is a message that's not just for for these days. It's a perpetual message. It's the message, message of the gospel. It's the message of all the New Testament. Trust Christ. Trust in him today. Today is the day of salvation. What are you waiting for? You don't know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know if you'll ever come back here. There's no promise that you'll survive another hour. If that scares you, well, good. You should be scared. Trust in Christ. This is what Jesus is teaching us here. Walk while you have the light. This is the final invitation for them to acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. Give up your preconceived notions about who you think Jesus is. Give them up, is what he's telling these people. Who's the son of man? I want all these answers to my questions. Give it all up. God's revelation is standing in front of you. Believe. If you do this, all those questions will be answered. Essentially, what he's saying. The cross reveals an urgent situation. And, in fact, if you believe, you'll become, as Jesus says here, sons of light. Sons of light. And to be a son of something, or to a someone, is to be characterized by that someone or that something. Therefore, to be a son of light is not to show a slight interest in the light. It's to be characterized by the light, to be revolutionized by the light. And so the text demands the question, where are we with Christ? Where are you with Jesus? Have you postponed your belief in him until all your theological problems are, are sorted out? Because that's what they're doing. They want all the boxes checked. I want to have answers to all these questions. Why is there suffering in the world? You know, why did my cat die when I was 13? You know, what, all these things. We, we want all these things checked off before we will actually believe. And J- Jesus doesn't even respond to that. He's not concerned about that. He says, walk while you have the light. I'm standing in front of you. Believe on me. Maybe you're waiting for all the boxes to be checked before you join the team before you get on the bus. Well, if this is you, I have a warning for you. By the time you check that last box, what Jesus is saying here is that the bus will have left. You get all that sorted out in your head. It won't matter anymore. The lights of the distant planet will have faded. You won't be able to study it anymore. It's gone. Your opportunity will have passed and darkness will seize you like a monster. There's another chance that, that the people have, the Jewish nation has, when the, the gospel and the early church goes forward. You remember Peter comes to the Jews and he gives them, the, he explains in the early chapters of, of, of Acts, he explains what happens, what happened on the cross. And you remember some of the Jews there It says they were cut to the heart. They realized what they did. You look at Zechariah chapter 12, and it it talks about, in the future day, I believe, that Zechariah 12 is speaking out, they will look, the Jews will look on him whom they pierced, and it says they'll mourn. Of course, they'll, they'll, they'll be overjoyed that Messiah has come. But there's a sense in which, oh, cut to the heart, mourning, realizing the opportunity they had. The last sentence of this text perfectly illustrates the truth of this point. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. You see, there it is. Jesus is now demonstrating with his body the truth, walk while you have the light, and he actually leaves, and he won't go back. He's done with them. He leaves the room. Now is the judgment. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. In the end, the decision to which Jesus calls us to, to which we call people to, is an ultimate decision with eternal circumstances. As hard as this job is, I can't imagine doing anything else. Because I just don't think there's anything more important. As, as frail, as flawed as I am, I want you to believe. I want you to trust Christ. Because there's nothing else. Why did Danny do this? Because this is the highest thing to stand before you and call you to believe to lay it aside, and to trust Christ all the way with every part of your being. The call to believe isn't some invitation to be saved from a future judgment. You see, Jesus says, now is the judgment. The judgment starts today, or salvation starts today. Right here, right now. Circle that word now. The consequences of your decision to believe or not to believe work themselves out upon your life right now, this morning. It's like a person with a curable disease. As soon as you start taking antibiotics, the effects of the disease are reversed. However, if you fail to take the antibiotics, what happens? I'm not a doctor, but the effects of the disease increase every day, things get worse. If we refuse the medicine, we succumb to the disease. And if we refuse to believe, we are overcome by darkness. Take your medicine. Look up at the cross and believe. Become sons and daughters of the light. I trust that most of you have believed. I think I'm speaking to Christians I think you have believed. I think that you have looked up at the cross, most of you, our church. We are then sons and daughters of the light. Well, what's your response? Praise him. Praise him. But yet this message is for us too, isn't it? I trust that you sense that because you know Life is a vapor. It's a vapor. The time is short. We have God's Word. Read it. Meditate on it. Hunger for His Word. That's our vision. That's our hope for our church. We have God's Spirit. We can keep in step with the Spirit. We can practice the one another's. We can care for each other. We can pray for one another. We can hold each other up. We can love one another. Church, we can forgive one another. Can you do that? Yes. We can forgive one another. We can sacrificially care for one another as we forgive each other and we believe the best in one another. Love believes all things. Blessed is the man who overlooks an offense. We have God's power. Don't waste it. Idleness, carelessness, indifference. Church, grow desperate to reach the lost. Our neighbors, coworkers, family members, they're in an urgent situation. We are in an urgent situation. J.C. Ryle wrote, Light is about us and around us and near us on every side. Let us each resolve to walk in the light while we have it, lest we find ourselves at length cast out into outer darkness forever. It is true saying, it is a true saying of an old divine that the recollection of lost and misspent opportunities will be the very essence of hell. Here's our call. Walk while you have the light. Believe in the light. Your terminal. That looming planet that, stu- that we study every, every Sunday, you come here and you haven't believed, that looming planet will be gone one day and you, won't have, you have missed the opportunity. So if you haven't believed, trust Christ. And if you have believed, recognize that your life is a vapor. Hunger for God's word, care for one another, and grow in desperation to reach the lost. Amen?